You can't bulldoze over my people. Our land, our final say. No pipelines will come on our land. Welcome to First Peoples Lawcast, featuring conversations on the defense of Indigenous title and rights. Today we are joined by Kate Gunn and Bruce McIver of First Peoples Law, co-authors of the firm's latest book, Reconciliation on Trial, with Suetin, Aboriginal Title, and the Rule of Law. The ebook features essays on the national controversy that erupted in the winter of 2020 in so-called North Central British Columbia, when members of the Wet'suwet'en sought to reinforce their own laws in the face of Canadian military aggression and the construction of a natural gas pipeline through their ancestral lands. Can you please introduce yourselves? Sure, I'm Bruce McTiver. I'm principal at First Peoples Law. I'm Kate Gunn. I'm a lawyer at First Peoples Law. I've worked here for a number of years and uh, for the past couple of years I've had the privilege of working um, with the Unistoten of the Wet'suwet'en on coastal gas link and related issues. And I'm very happy to be here on the podcast. Bruce, in your preface to the book, you tell us that First Peoples Law gathered these essays together to combat forgetfulness. Why is the power of memory so important for the recognition and respect of Indigenous rights? I think all too often what we've seen happen across the country is that these types of issues come to the forefront. They attract attention in the non-Indigenous community for a short amount of time. And then non-Indigenous Canadians go back to doing what they've been doing for decades and and decades. And that's ignoring the fact that there's a continuing injustice against Indigenous people across the country. So it's important not just to focus in the moment, but it's to retain those memories and come back to them again and hold, comp- and hold governments to account as, as to what they're doing to make it better to ensure that Indigenous people's rights are res- respected across the country. The denial of Indigenous rights also thrives on misunderstanding. The first essay in the book combats this by giving straightforward answers to common questions about the Wet'suwet'en conflict. Kate, can you respond to the statement that some First Nations along the pipeline route, including Wet'suwet'en chiefs and councils, have signed agreements in support of the project? Sure, yeah. So this was an issue that came to the fore during the Wet'suwet'en conflict, uh, I think in large part uh, by the mainstream media. And it raises a number of important issues that, without being clarified, can un, um, obscure some of the underlying pieces at, at stake in this conflict. Um, firstly, there's more than one type of governance system for the Wet'suwet'en. Um, like many Indigenous groups across Canada, there's both a traditional governance system and um, the elected chiefs and councils under the Indian Act. And when we talk about um, leaders being democratically elected, it's important to remember that the chief and council system itself exists as a piece of federal legislation under the Indian Act um, and was created uh, as part of the federal government's process of suppressing and denying Indigenous law in the 19th century. 
The other piece to remember is that the Wet'suwet'en hereditary governance system predates colonization and continues to exist today, and that it's something that the Supreme Court of Canada heard detailed evidence on in the landmark Delgamook Gisdewe Aboriginal title case. So it's something that the Crown um, has information on. Uh, the other piece I think that's important to keep in mind is that chief and councils under the Indian Act have only limited authority. Um, unless it's otherwise delegated by the group that they represent, their authority ends at the boundaries of the reserves. And so when we hear from hereditary chiefs talking about wanting to protect their territory, they're talking about the territory, um, the ancestral lands of the Wet'suwet'en outside of the reserves. And then I think the last piece that is worth mentioning is that signing an agreement um, doesn't mean that a particular group has consented to a project. Uh, across Canada, we work with many um, Indian Act bands who have to make very difficult decisions every day about how to provide for their members. And that's in large part due to colonization and chronic underfunding of reserves. And so a situation where a First Nation has signed an impact benefit agreement um, shouldn't be taken as a indication that the entire community supports the project. It's, it's a sign that that particular community has made a decision about a particular project um, in the circumstances that they face. Some listeners may be aware of the Delgamook Gasteaway case decided at the Supreme Court of Canada in 1997. Bruce, can you explain why this decision is so important for understanding the Wet'suwet'en conflict and the law of Aboriginal title? There's a few reasons why it's so important. The first is that the Wet'suwet'en and the Gitsan have been to court on their Aboriginal title. They've spent years and years in court putting the evidence forward for, for, for their t- title. Secondly, the court decided in the Delgamook decision what title entails, and it includes the right to make decisions about your land. So it's important that this is what the Wet'suwet'en were doing, deciding how their lands should be used or not used. And lastly, the Wet'suwet'en were exercising exactly what the court said title looks like and what you need to do in order to prove your title. Part of the proof for title is being able to exclude others from your land. And that's exactly what the Wet'suwet'en were endeavoring to do in regards to the pipe, to the pipeline. So there's a lot of really important lessons to be taken from the Delgamook decision. Kate, you point out that just because British Columbia has acted as though it has the full authority to decide how Indigenous peoples' lands are used, this doesn't make it legal or just. Who has the right to make decisions on Wet'suwet'en territory under Canadian law? Thanks. So it's a complex issue because there are, as we've talked about, multiple legal systems at play. And so, of course, the Wet'suwet'en have their own decision-making processes under Wet'suwet'en law. But under Canadian law, Aboriginal title is a right that's protected under the Constitution. It's the highest law in Canada. 
And the Supreme Court has said that Aboriginal title is a right to make decisions about how lands are used. And as Bruce just said in the discussion about the impact of the Delgamut case, the Supreme Court has already heard the evidence for the Wet'suwet'en supporting uh, the title to their ancestral lands and also the role that their traditional governance systems play in making decisions about those lands. And again, under Canadian law, where Aboriginal title exists, um, the federal and provincial governments need to obtain consent from the title holding group if they want to proceed with something that the group um, opposes on those lands, unless in rare circumstances they're able to justify that infringement. So there's that piece. And then the second piece is the fact that Canadian courts have also acknowledged that even under Canadian law, um, the Crown's assertion of sovereignty has yet to be fully explained how that um, applies to and can be justified over Indigenous people. And so in light of the court's recognition of the de facto assertion of sovereignty and its comments on Aboriginal title, I think it's clear that the uh, Wet'suwet'en, under their own governance system, should have a right to make decisions about how their ancestral title lands are used. Bruce, what about their repeated appeals to the so-called rule of law? Well, for those that know me well, these are one of the things that drive me crazy because I think it's used most often as a tool to oppress Indigenous people. What they have to keep in mind is, first, that the Wet'suwet'en were exercising the rule of law, their own laws, and Wet'suwet'en law is part of Canadian law. So when they're stopping people from going on to their lands, they are exercising the rule of law. That's exactly what they're doing. In comparison, what we've had in BC is government after government ignoring the rule of law for 150 years, because at the time that BC was colonized, the rule of law then was you respect indigenous land rights. And that's exactly what every government since 1858 has not done. It's not respected Indigenous land rights. It's not respected Wet'suwet'en rights. So it's it's a bit hypocritical for those same officials to turn around and point the fingers now at Indigenous people and say, oh, you've got to follow the rule of law. Kate, you explain in the final essay that media coverage of Wet'suwet'en solidarity demonstrations across the country and around the world was eclipsed by the global outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic. What has been the impact of COVID-19 on the Wet'suwet'en standoff, and how can we expect the ongoing conflict to be addressed coming out of this crisis? I think that the COVID-19 situation has affected uh, everyone across the world, and the Wet'suwet'en standoff was not an exception. Um, One of the key things that led to um, some of the positive changes that we were beginning to see towards the end of the winter 2020, in particular the federal and provincial governments finally coming to the table to speak with Wet'suwet'en leaders, uh, was in large part, I think, generated and facilitated by media awareness and solidarity actions that took place across the country. I think those played a critical role in getting the Crown to the table. 
And so with the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, that makes it much more difficult, both in terms of organizing large and small-scale solidarity actions, and it also makes more dif it more difficult for Indigenous governance processes to move forward in their own way. So for the Wet'suwet'en, um, being able to consider issues like the Memorandum of Understanding that uh, has been recently finalized, um, which would set, set forward a path uh, to address issues around title and rights, has been much more difficult um, to uh, run through its own processes, uh, for example, in the Feast Hall for the Wet'suwet'en. And so I think that's one aspect of it. Another one is that um, I think that because of the significant changes to all of our lifestyles that have come out of COVID-19, that it is important to keep in mind if and when we do find ourselves in a post-COVID-19 world, that some of the inconveniences that we experienced earlier in 2020 around railway stoppages and things like that related to the Wet'suwet'en standoff um, are very minor and things that are easily adapted to. And lastly, I think it's important to keep in mind that to the extent we can, um, to try to continue to keep this issue on the public's radar. Uh, it was, I think, late 2019 or early 2020 when The Guardian uh, released a report that noted that in the enforcement of the initial injunction against the Wet'suwet'en that the police there had been authorized to use lethal force against the land defenders. And the subsequent enforcement actions saw, uh, again, matriarchs and leaders and supporters being handcuffed and removed from their lands. And so without having that presence and attention, there's a heightened risk of um, safety for the Wet'suwet'en and their supporters. So everything we can do to continue to keep this issue on the forefront because it's not going away for the Wet'suwet'en um, anytime soon. The book also includes a five-step plan for real reconciliation. Bruce, can you speak to the need to implement the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and to embrace consent-based decision-making? So late last year, the BC government passed its UNDRIP legislation to great fanfare. I don't think the problem is with the legislation per se. The problem is with the position that the provincial government has taken, and specifically in relation to this project about the effect of the legislation. They've taken the position that it's forward-looking in the sense that we're planning to do something down the road. It's aspirational. We'll get around to changing the laws at some time to bring them in line with UNDRIP. That's not how I read the legislation. I think a fair reading is that now, from the day that it was passed, received royal assent, there's a positive obligation on the B.C. provincial government to ensure that all laws, and that's writ large, that's not just legislation, that's regulations, policies, when decisions are made, when they are implemented, they have to be true to the principles of UNDRIP. And that's where the problem is with the provincial government's position. And it creates and resonates across the country. 
I think, because we've seen all far too many times federal and provincial politicians getting up in front of the microphone and making big announcements. Things have changed from this day forward. Things will be done differently. And the fact is, all too often, things don't change. It can be more rhetoric than substance. And what that does is it creates cynicism. And I think that is our biggest threat. Both Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, they lose respect for the system. Fairly. It's completely understandable why they would. And when you have cynicism, you're never going to get to real, meaningful change. And that's why we need the government to stand up and say that we will live up to these principles now. Not in the future, but now. And how about the principle of free, prior, and informed consent? It's important to keep in mind with the UNDRIP legislation that while the consent principle is there, it's not new in Canadian law. It's not necessarily dependent on the UNDRIP legislation. The Supreme Court has more than once observed that in certain situations, Indigenous consent is required, and that in an Aboriginal title situation, that's what you need to do. You need to go out there and get consent of the Aboriginal title holder. It's important if you read the 2014 Sil Cotin decision from the Supreme Court of Canada. I think the Supreme Court there uses the word consent about 20 times or so. Consent is part of Canadian law. It's part of exercising Aboriginal title. And most importantly, it's something that governments need to actively pursue. They need to seek consent. And that leads to an important conversation then with the Indigenous landholders. Because then they're being asked, what do we need to do to get your consent? And governments need to accept that in certain situations, the answer is no, that there's nothing you can do to get that consent. Kate, what should the role of the federal government be in this? So I think one of the challenges and issues that often happens within the Canadian system of government is that it becomes very easy for federal and provincial governments to try to pass responsibility for certain issues back and forth. And so in this case, um, even though the provincial government has yet to take action to seriously resolve the issue, we often still hear that it's primarily a federal, or sorry, a provincial, not federal issue. I think that ignores the fact that um, When Canada first came into being and the federal government and provincial governments were assigned specific roles under the Canadian Constitution, that it was the federal government that was assigned exclusive legislative authority over Indians and land served for Indians. And although that law and the assignment of federal jurisdiction over Indigenous peoples is a function of colonialism and problematic in many ways, The flip side of it is that one of the underlying purposes of that exclusive legislative authority was to ensure that there was 
a national policy on Indigenous issues that would protect Indigenous people from what used to be referred to as local settler majorities, and those are now what we know as provincial governments. And so I think that although there are clearly concerns about the federal government's assertion of control, um, legislative control over Indigenous people, and there's also been recent decisions by the Supreme Court which have expanded the role of the provincial government in issues about Aboriginal and treaty rights that the federal government continues to have a significant constitutional responsibility and that stems from the fact that it doesn't have the same kind of local pressures to face in terms of resource development and um, local populations and as we move forward in a world where there are increasing pressures to develop more and more scarce resources, that federal role is going to be uh, continuing to be important in terms of protecting Indigenous people's rights. The five-step plan also includes renouncing violence against Indigenous people. Bruce, this is a topic you address directly in your personal essay in the book titled reconciliation at the end of a gun. What do you mean when you say that this violence has become the hallmark of reconciliation? This is a tough one. It's tough for everyone to speak about this because it's one of those things that Canadians don't like to hear about. It's not their vision of Canada. It's not what they think about when they think about reconciliation. They think about hugs apologies. But the fact is that beneath it all, there's a threat of violence. There's a threat of violence on a daily basis against individual Indigenous people. There's a threat of violence from the state against Indigenous people. That can be the type of violence we've seen all too much, particularly in the last few weeks, the spotlight has been there. And it's important to know that there's a history to it, and there's a law to it. The Canadian state is based on violence against Indigenous people. That's one of the tools of colonization. And Canada's used it all across the country. They continue to use it. Because when you really think about it, colonization isn't something about the past. It's something that's carrying on today. Indigenous people's lands continue to be called colonized. We still have the RCMP, which used to be the Northwest Mounted Police, playing an active role in that colonization on a daily basis. And the denial that underlies federal and provincial policies leads to that kind of violence against Indigenous people. Because when push comes to shove, governments, companies can get injunctions against Indigenous people when they're standing up to defend their land. And then the RCMP is called in to enforce those injunctions. And they enforce them and can and do and can continue to across the country with the threat of violence against people that are operating within the so-called rule of law. 
that are exercising their own laws. And I think it's something that Canadians across the country should be deeply ashamed of, that that's the way the Canadian system works and government policies not just support it, but encourage it. The Wet'suwet'en conflict is a strong reminder that law is often a tool of domination. As lawyers, I'm assuming you believe that law is also a tool of social change. What role do you each think law plays in resolving long-standing colonial conflicts such as this one? Thanks. So two, two points come to mind. Uh, one is that I think using Canadian law um, to try to resolve these kinds of issues while one be, is one tool. Um, but in terms of achieving long-term success, there always needs to be something more, and that includes support and pressure from both Indigenous and non-Indigenous people to push for government to, and, and by government I mean federal and provincial government, to enact and enforce meaningful change in terms of their policies and how Indigenous peoples' rights to make decisions about their lands are treated and respected. And the second piece is that although Canadian law is um, a function of colonization, that it's also in part the same rule of law that um, the Premier of BC invoked during the Wet'suwet'en standoff. And so I think there is a role to play in terms of holding federal and provincial governments and industry to account based on their own laws, um, as well as there being a role to play for Wet'suwet'en and other Indigenous laws. And so using that Canadian law developed by Canadian courts to ensure that the federal and provincial governments actually fulfill those obligations, I think, does play a role in hopefully helping to resolve some of these longstanding colonial uh, conflicts. These past few months, particularly with the, the spotlight that there's been on this issue, I think really highlights an important aspect of the law when we think of the law. It's a hard time to be a lawyer. I know I've talked to a lot of my colleagues across the country that represent Indigenous people, and it is hard to be working within the colonial legal system, and you see that these are the outcomes. And I think it speaks to a fundamental fact. We need a more meaningful, broader view of law when we think about how the law can work. I think to really move this forward, there needs to be true respect for Indigenous laws, Indigenous legal orders, and not just as platitudes, but how we're going to implement that, create the space and ensure that it's respected by all Canadians. And if there's anything positive that comes out of this, hopefully it's a renewed commitment to that. Not working within those blinkers of colonial law, of Canadian law, but understanding that Indigenous people's laws are there, they need to be respected, and that that will create a path forward. I think that there will be a lot fewer of these types of confrontations if there was a commitment across the country, if there was a commitment by provincial and federal governments 
to really ensure that indigenous laws are respected when decisions are made. You've been listening to Kate Gunn and Bruce McIver, lawyers at First People's Law, discussing their new ebook, Reconciliation on Trial, with Suetin, Aboriginal Title, and the Rule of Law. The book is available as a free download on our website at firstpeopleslaw.com. Special thanks to A Tribe Called Red for the use of their tracks Stadium Pow Wow, Unistoten Camp Remix, and Land Back, featuring Boogie the Beat and Northern Voice, dedicated in support of the Wet'suwet'en Nation and to the Indigenous-led movements across Turtle Island and beyond. First People's Law Corporation is legal counsel for Unistoten. The statements here and in the book are made on our own behalf and reflect our views on this issue, not those of our client. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>